This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. On this episode of the podcast, we're speaking with deaf and hard of hearing audiologists and addressing subjects such as accessibility in education, accommodations, and the strengths and insights these audiologists contribute to the profession and their clients. Our guests say deaf and hard of hearing people bring a valuable perspective to the profession because of their personal experiences. First, we hear from educational audiologist Sarah Sparks. She shares her story, including the ways she's witnessed how her being deaf has empowered clients can be very meaningful for children to see that their audiologist uses hearing devices when they themselves as a child use hearing devices. And audiologist Stacy Lim of Central Michigan University shares what future audiologists may consider when looking for employment. I'm JD Gray and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Get unlimited access to ASHA's catalog of CE courses for one annual fee. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. Joining me is Sarah Sparks. Sarah has many roles. She's an educational audiologist for a large public school district. She runs Audiology Outside the Box, an oral rehabilitation and audiologic counseling business. And Sarah works as an adjunct instructor at Gallaudet University. Relevant to this conversation, Sarah is deaf. She uses cochlear implants and communicates using American Sign Language and Spoken English. Along with past ASHA Voices guest Laura Coco, Sarah co-moderated an online webinar on autism, discrimination based on someone being deaf or hard of hearing. More on that subject in a moment. The webinar was organized by ASHA Special Interest Group 8, Public Health Audiology, and included a panel of deaf and hard of hearing audiologists. Sarah ended the webinar by saying, quote, we need to encourage more deaf and hard of hearing people to get into the audiology profession. The more deaf and hard of hearing people that we get in this profession, the more perspectives we'll get on these issues from people who have actively experienced autism in our own lives, end quote. To learn more, I spoke with Sarah in February for a discussion on autism and what can be done to bring more deaf and hard of hearing audiologists into the profession. I asked Sarah, what is autism and what does it look like? There are several different definitions for autism, but the core commonality for all of them is the idea that deaf and hard of hearing people should have to think, be, exist, and behave just like hearing people in the world. Along with that, it's really important to acknowledge that these issues don't just affect the big D deaf community where the term originated, but they also affect deaf and hard of hearing people writ large. Autism can be intentional and overt, or it can be unintentional. So an example of intentional overt autism would be directly saying deaf and hard of hearing people can't do this. So for example, deaf and hard of hearing people can't be audiologists. But a more indirect example would be having that underlying belief that you don't necessarily realize, but having that reflected into something that you do when interacting with a deaf or hard of hearing person. So one example that I read in an article that was published by one of the ASHA SIGs, the anecdote is from a deaf doctor who was using video relay service to make a phone call related to his work. And the interpreter on the video relay call was interpreting for the deaf doctor and the options for the phone tree were coming up in the phone call. So press one for patient, press two for doctor. And the deaf doctor wanted to press two, so he told the interpreter two. 
But then the interpreter actually corrected him and said, no, two is for doctors. Don't you mean option one? And certainly that interpreter would be unlikely to be a person who'd say deaf and hard of hearing people can't be doctors. But there was probably an underlying assumption in that person's thinking that, no, certainly this person isn't the doctor. So that would be an example of unintentional autism, the ways that latent beliefs that deaf and hard of hearing people can't do certain things influence how deaf and hard of hearing people get treated. Another example of this that came up during the webinar was sometimes subconscious or inadvertent assumptions about someone's intelligence based on the way they speak. Yes, definitely. The way that a person speaks can certainly be an issue for autism. When I meet people and they find out that I'm deaf, the first reaction that I typically get is, wow, your speech is amazing. The reason that my speech is amazing is that I am deaf due to a progressive hearing loss. I was not born this way. So that's part of my story that's not part of every deaf or hard of hearing person's story. But because I have very clear speech, I find that in my life, people often expect me to communicate only in spoken language, to access information only in spoken language, and to use only accommodations that revolve around spoken language. So sometimes I get a little bit of resistance to scheduling ASL interpreters as an accommodation for me. It's not always considered by people I meet in my daily life that ASL might in some situations be a better way for me to access content than spoken English. Mm. You find yourself having to do some self-advocacy to get the accommodations that you need because of the way you speak and assumptions people may make about you based on that. Yes, and that's just one example. Deaf and hard of hearing people who don't know ASL and who do communicate in spoken languages only face other kinds of barriers with accommodations too. And some of that can also be related to perceptions about how they speak. You mentioned your personal experience with a progressive form of hearing loss, being someone who is deaf. I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit about your path to becoming an audiologist, your personal story. Sure. So audiology is a second career for me. I was a theology and religious studies teacher before I became an audiologist, which is a very, very different field. So it was a big career change for me. But one of the things that motivated that change is that I had received audiology services as a patient, and I'd had a lot of experiences where I wished that I went to an audiologist who signed or who even acknowledged that I was a signer in addition to being a talker. I wanted to be able to provide bilingual clinical services in ASL and English to a community that I'm part of, because in addition to being part of the hearing world, I'm also part of the deaf community. And that's really important to me. I think it is really important as well to be able to provide those services to anyone who is interested in ASL being part of their communication. So someone who's maybe just starting to take an interest in learning or the families of deaf and hard of hearing children when the child has recently been identified and the parents are starting to learn ASL on their own and the child's starting to learn I think it can be a very positive influence when an audiologist is a bilingual service provider in ASL and English. So that was a huge motivator for me to become an audiologist. Your practice takes a strengths-focused approach. That's what I'm hearing you say. It's about empowerment. Do you view your hearing loss or the perspective you've gained 
from your hearing loss, uh, from being deaf, as an advantage when working with deaf and hard of hearing people? Yeah, certainly there are challenges to being a deaf or hard of hearing audiologist, and I don't want to minimize those. Those do have to be addressed. But on the whole, I would say that my deafness is an advantage in working with the people I work with, especially because I work primarily with children and their families. It can be very meaningful for children and families to see a deaf or hard of hearing audiologist. It can be very meaningful for children to see that their audiologist uses hearing devices when they themselves as a child use hearing devices. I have all kinds of experiences in my day-to-day work when children I am first meeting notice that I use cochlear implants because maybe they use cochlear implants themselves or maybe they use hearing aids. And they are fascinated by the idea that the audiologist who's working with them uses hearing devices too. And I'm thinking back to an experience I had during my externship year, which I did at a pediatric hospital. There was one instance when I was working with a little girl, maybe five years old, who had cochlear implants. And she walked into the room and she saw me. And she just went, her mouth was gaping open and she was pointing at my cochlear implant processors. And she was just so excited. And her mom said, you know, see, she looks like you. I think it's really important for kids to have somebody who looks like them. But by the end of that appointment, the little girl left saying that she either wants to be Spider-Man or an audiologist when she grows up, which just filled my heart with so much joy and made me even more confident that I was going into the right profession. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, Sarah discusses accessibility and accommodations. We hear from another audiologist about transitioning into a professional setting. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Earn ASHA CEUs and stay current with the ASHA Learning Pass by accessing ASHA's comprehensive catalog of CE courses for one convenient annual fee. Choose from more than 150 audiology-related courses. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. Earlier in the episode, I read a quote from Sarah that she shared at the end of a SIG-8 webinar on autism. Sarah said, quote, The more deaf and hard of hearing people that we get in this profession, the more perspectives we would get on these issues from people who have actively experienced autism in our own lives, end quote. With this in mind, I turned our conversation towards the potential barriers that prevent or make it more difficult for deaf and hard of hearing people to become audiologists. As we discussed earlier, autism could be unintentional and could be a barrier surrounding something like accessibility in education. I asked Sarah to share what some of those barriers are and some potential solutions. I think at a very basic level, when audiologists who are already in the profession either encourage or discourage deaf and hard of hearing people from becoming audiologists that can have an impact or the better or the worse, depending upon what is said. I am fortunate that most people in my life before I became an audiology student even, and then in my days as a student, most people were very encouraging about my desire to become an audiologist. But every now and then I did meet people, including audiologists and sometimes including clinical preceptors who were more discouraging. There were a couple of times that I was told, you know, maybe you should consider a different career that's not audiology because you 
can't score word recognition in the same way as other audiologists do, or you can't do listening checks in the same way that other audiologists do. But again, on the whole, I had more encouragement than discouragement, but I've heard a lot of stories from other deaf and hard of hearing audiologists and audiology students about ways that they have been discouraged by audiologists who think that they can't do what is required for being an audiologist. That can prevent someone from even knowing that they can enter an audiology program or they can study audiology. But once a person does enter a program, there are other barriers that they face. I think most deaf and hard of hearing people who go into AUD programs, because we've had university education before, at least have a sense of what works for us in the classroom. So whether that's cart captioning, ASL interpreting, note taking, the kinds of accommodations that work well in the classroom, a lot of us come in with a good sense of what we need there. There may be some exceptions to that, but generally I think that is the case. But adapting things for clinic, that's where things become really challenging. I think it's very easy to come in as a deaf or hard of hearing audiology student thinking, I've spent a lot of time on the patient side. I know what it's like in an audiology clinic. I know what it's like in a test booth. I know what it's like in programming room for hearing aids, cochlear implants. You know, I'll be good. I'll be fine. But then once you get started doing clinical rotations, you start to realize pretty quickly, wow, it's very different being on the clinician side than on the patient side. And I think those audiologists who work in audiology education, either in the classroom or as clinical preceptors or both, could really support deaf and hard of hearing students by being patient with that learning curve and also helping the student to find what accommodations work for them. If you've met one deaf or hard of hearing audiology student, that's it. You've met that one person. Each person is a unique individual and what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for another. So rather than telling a deaf or hard of hearing audiology student, you should use XYZ accommodations because those worked for the last deaf or hard of hearing person who was in this program, take more of an open-minded approach to creative use of different accommodations that could be helpful, even if they weren't necessarily helpful for the last person that you worked with. There are different ways that specific hearing devices can be coupled to assistive listening devices to make personalized listening scopes. And how that works is going to be different from person to person, depending upon what their existing hearing technology is. So having a curiosity about that and inspiring that kind of curiosity in the student. Coming up with creative solutions for communication when the student is the test assistant for VRA and for CPA, or when the student's actually doing the testing. Coming up with creative solutions for word recognition scoring. There are so many things that you can do. You can reposition the student in the booth if they're the test assistant, such that they have better visual access to read the tester's lips. You can come up with a system where if the student has trouble hearing the difference between left and right for the left and right speakers. That's something I still to this day struggle with. Instead of left and right, maybe call the left and right by the name of the animal that's on the reinforcer. So if you've got a panda on one side and an elephant on the other, maybe say panda or elephant instead of right or left so that they know which direction to reinforce. For word recognition, there's so many things you can do. Have the patient write the words. Have an interpreter in the booth. 
pause the recording and ask the patient to repeat. There are a lot of different ways that might work for different people. I would encourage those who are in education to let the student experiment and see what works for them because it might not come overnight. And it probably won't come overnight. There is a lot of time that often needs to be taken to figure out what works for a student. And I've actually been a preceptor for a deaf audiology student in my career as well. Even me as a deaf preceptor, I had to take some time for that student to figure out what worked for her and what didn't work for her. And some of what worked for her was very different from what works for me. At the university setting, a lot of times there are specific offices that are aimed at assisting with accommodations, and there's budgeting for that. And when the transition into the professional world comes, it may be different to receive some of those accommodations, I would imagine. You may have to, whether it's self-advocacy, like we talked about earlier, or a different approach. I'm just wondering, could you talk a little bit about that transition? Did you experience any barriers and and did you experience barriers in your professional career? Yeah, um, that's a really great question. I um, did experience a lot of concern when I was transitioning from student to professional about what accommodations might be available in the kinds of workplaces that I wanted to work in. Pediatrics is my area that I'm interested in. I have known since the beginning of my time as an audiology student that I wanted to be a pediatric audiologist, and that was the population I wanted to work with. I spent a lot of time thinking about how do I go about requesting accommodations for the kinds of places that I want to work at. I think different people find that different things work for them. I know some deaf and hard of hearing audiologists prefer not to disclose their deafness until after they've already been offered a job. I chose a different path. So when I was interviewing for my current job, I was very straightforward at the beginning. I am deaf. These are the accommodations that I would need if I were to be hired. This is your position as an educational audiologist. Yes, my current position as an educational audiologist. I decided that I wanted the person who was potentially hiring me to know that from the beginning so that I could also assess, is this a place that I actually want to work? Because if they're not comfortable with my accommodations, maybe I don't want to work there. That's a decision that every deaf or hard of hearing person has to make for themselves when they disclose and what they disclose. But for me, I disclosed it up front before I even had my interview for my current job. And I've been very fortunate that my current job has been excellent with my accommodations. I can request an interpreter at any time that I need. I put in interpreter requests all the time. And it's funny because there were times when I was a student that every now and then someone would tell me, well, if you use ASL interpreters as an accommodation, your career options are going to be limited. And that's just not been the case for me. I have felt very supported. I do know other deaf and hard of hearing audiologists who've had trouble getting interpreters, trouble getting CART, trouble getting accommodations. And I think Some of that may be due to the tension over how much to disclose, but a whole lot of it is, I think, due to misunderstandings about how much we need those accommodations. I think this goes back to the issue of autism related to how well a person speaks or how well a person appears to function in the world. It's definitely possible that a deaf or hard of hearing audiologist could 
work somewhere that their coworkers are assuming, well, they don't need an ASL interpreter because they speak really well, or they don't need an ASL interpreter because they seem like they're hearing me very well when I talk to them. I've heard about those issues from colleagues of mine who are deaf and hard of hearing. You know, we've talked about barriers. We've talked about the strengths that deaf and hard of hearing audiologists can bring to their patients. What else could be done to bring in more deaf and hard of hearing people into the profession? I think just raising awareness that audiology is a profession that is open to deaf and hard of hearing people. That alone, I think, can make a huge amount of difference. But I think if we even step back from that, thinking about how we as audiologists treat our patients and the ways that we approach them in clinical situations, how we communicate with them, how we accommodate their needs, I think we have to ask ourselves, why is it that deaf and hard of hearing people think they can't be audiologists? Why is that? Is it because we as deaf and hard of hearing people just assume that since we have hearing losses, we can't? Or are we getting messages from the service providers who see us as patients, even subtle messages that say we can't? I think we really need to be asking ourselves that as audiologists. We need to be asking ourselves that as a profession. What more can we do to honor the person who's before us as a patient and not interact with them in ways that are based on negative assumptions about their identity, their communication ability, their languages, and so on? Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I want to share one more point Sarah mentioned. Sarah wanted to highlight the importance of professional associations like ASHA providing captioning and transcriptions for all media with audio like videos, webinars, and of course, this podcast. Find transcriptions for this and every episode of ASHA Voices at on.asha.org slash podcast. Sarah's words about finding a place to work echo something I heard from another recent conversation. Audiologist Stacy Lim is an associate professor of audiology at Central Michigan University. She also participated in the SIG-8 webinar. Stacy was born with profound sensory neural hearing loss in both ears. She uses a cochlear implant and a hearing aid. I spoke with Stacy and I asked her about this specific transition, moving from training and education to a professional setting. She shares four things she finds important. I think one of the things that's really important is to find a workplace that's going to be very accepting of the accommodation you might need. Stacey says she's been pretty lucky in her working life to find that workplace. The other thing to also find out what kind of avenues there might be for getting accommodation. Especially if you're working in a larger facility, you might be able to apply for workplace accommodation through those facility. Stacey's third tip go to your state vocational rehabilitation bureau and see if they can help. She says they may offer something you need. Because the goal of a vocational rehabilitation office is to ensure that you have the item necessary for you to do your job. So it's going to vary from state to state what you are able to get and who qualifies and that kind of thing. Finally, Stacy says it can be helpful to find a network of audiologists who have hearing loss. She says they may have a perspective or an idea that will help. There's like a Facebook group called the Association of Audiologists with Hearing Loss, and there are quite a few, and there's a student group too. 
This reminded me of the webinar that helped to spark this conversation. And I asked Stacy about her experience participating in the panel discussion with so many of her deaf and hard of hearing peers. She said that she knew many of them before that conversation. I have a lot of shared commonalities, like maybe something to be challenges in my face in clinic, for example, or maybe trying to find a job for some people. So I have a lot of those shared experiences and shared positive and negative experiences. The really nice thing about these groups is that you know other people are going to understand what you've been through or what you're going through. At the end of our conversation, I asked Stacy if there was anything else she wanted to share. I think it's really important to be supportive of students who have hearing loss who want to enter the communication sciences and disorders field or audiology or speak language pathology because they do have a pretty valuable perspective to bring. And I don't think we should be letting their hearing loss limit that. I think what we need to be doing is thinking of ways we can support these students and kind of be creative and then to also make sure that they're aware of the different kinds of accommodation they can use in the clinic and the classroom. We're going to discuss those creative solutions on the next episode of ASHA Voices when two audiologists from the University of Memphis join the podcast. They discuss the accommodations they've used while addressing the needs of a deaf student in the classroom and in the clinic. Also, check out the blog post for this episode and look for a link to the SIG-8 conversation we mentioned earlier in this episode. We'll add it to the website as soon as it's available. That's at on.asha.org slash podcast. Find more episodes of ASHA Voices and ASHA resources related to today's episode there as well. That's at on.asha.org slash podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass, access more than 150 audiology courses for one annual fee. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.